If you have a Bible, open up the 1 Samuel chapter 29. We're going to be finishing this book very soon here, folks. As you're turning there, let me ask you a couple of questions just to get our, our morning started. Uh, have you ever been in over your head? You ever bitten off more than you can chew? Yeah, Adventure Week. We just did that. Uh, you, you ever mess with the bull only to get the horns? You ever been in a kitchen where you can't stand the heat, right? You name the, the proverb, the dictum, the axiom, the cliche. There's so many of them because people tend to get themselves in the situations where they can't get themselves out. We get ourselves in the binds that we can't, of our own will and accord and wisdom and strength, get ourselves removed from the situation. It's kind of like getting onto a roller coaster and realizing five seconds in that you did not want to get on this roller coaster, right? My family and I love roller coasters. We can go upside down, spin sides and sides. doesn't matter to us. So when we were at California Adventure and we saw the Mickey Mouse Disney Ferris wheel, we thought, what the heck? Oh, that'd be a nice to see the park. We were terrified. Have you been on, anyone been on this thing? So for those of you who haven't seen this, look at the next slide. This Ferris wheel is like demonic because your cart spins and slides on this thing. And we didn't know that getting on until it kind of went up and the car just slid and we thought we were going to die, our whole family. Sorry guys, but we were all terrified. We were all like, nobody move, stand to the edge. And like everyone else was sliding and having fun and our family, I, I think I was about to cry, but I didn't want my kids to cry, so I held it together. But as we went on one rotation, the guy was like, hey, again, again, our whole family in one accord. No, get us off. We don't like this. Sometimes you get into situations and you regret it and you realize you can't get yourself out. Years ago, to the embarrassment of my family, I got kicked out of Catholic school and sent back to public school. And as a young man, uh, getting respect is important and you don't want to be on the, the, the bottom of the food chain socially. So I kind of started talking about my ability to handle myself and things were okay until we got to the conversation of the gooch. Now, the Gooch wasn't the biggest guy on campus, but he was far from being the smallest guy on campus either. And all of a sudden, I had a sin the foot and mouth syndrome as the words, I could take him, just rolled out of my mouth, and I couldn't stop that. Well, things spun out of control because after school, there I was going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Gooch. And let me tell you, it was an epic beat down on me. It was like David and Goliath, but David didn't do so well. I remember, I can still remember this. My wife's laughing because this is so me. Getting myself into this situation, trying to get respect, having this backfire epically, looking over and seeing the faces of my new friends wincing as I was getting hit in the face by the gooch, right? Life can be those kinds of things where we get in a jam and our first instinct is to find our way out of it. Now, maybe your situation is more serious than a schoolyard fight or getting on a Ferris wheel or a roller coaster that you can't get out of. Maybe you've messed up some relationships, you've burned some bridges, and the way to restore that doesn't seem possible. Maybe you are in a situation and the way out, hope is non-existent. What do you do in those moments? Do you have to just resign yourself to the despair? Do you have to kind of just give in to the depression that things are beyond your control and there's no hope? What can you do when you're in a situation and you can't get out? Is there any hope when there doesn't seem to be any hope? Is there anyone who can stop the roller coaster on the sixth second? Well, 1 Samuel 29 is a reminder for us 
that there is. You see, uh, for those of you who may not be familiar with our passage, David has found himself in a situation that he's in way over his head. His circumstances are beyond his control, and his resources to bail himself out are completely tapped out. And yet we learn a familiar lesson in this chapter, a lesson that has been all over these later chapters of 1 Samuel, and that is we serve a God that saves and He brings His salvation in 10,000 different ways to His people. It is a lesson that's well worth learning again because it's such an important truth that we need to build our lives upon that God is a God who saves and especially in those situations where we cannot save ourselves. That is the arc of this very short uh, chapter of 11 verses. So I'm going to ask the Lord to bless the teaching of His Word. We'll read the short chapter, and we'll dive into it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You know us, and You know that we get ourselves in situations that oftentimes we cannot get out of. And Lord, there is not just hope in that. There is a triumphant hope knowing that You are a God who delights to save in those very situations. Lord, help us to see the connections in our own lives as we see it in David's this morning in 1 Samuel 29. We'll thank You for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you these short 11 verses, chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. Now, the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek. And the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing by, on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Verse 3, the commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commander of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and for years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us into battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David of whom they sang songs to one another? Saul has struck his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest to me, and it seems right that you should go march out with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Verse 8, and David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go up and fight against the king's enemies of my lord the king? Verse 9, and Achish answered David and said, I know that, there are, that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to battle. Now then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. Verse 11, so David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Well, you recall where we are in our narrative of 1 Samuel. David finds himself and his men in a very sticky situation. 
He's done such a great job of deceiving Achish that we learned about in chapter 27 that he and his men, all 600, have been conscripted to go to battle with the Philistines against the people of Israel, his own people. David is on a, the classic on the horns of a dilemma. If David refuses to fight, Achish will have good reason to suspect what he's been doing for the last 14 months that he's been with him, and therefore he and all 600 of his men and all their family would be quickly executed. If he chooses to fight against Israel alongside Achish and the other Philistines, he'll never be able to claim the throne of Israel for this betrayal. Does that make sense? You see the dilemma David is in. This is a classic lose-lose situation. But there is a third option that is here, and that is a constant theme in the Bible with God. There is always a third way. Things are never quite what they seem. There is always a third way when God is part of the equation, one that David could not have anticipated, and that God would intervene and deliver His servant yet again. Now, we need to be really clear that this is not just another lucky break that David somehow managed. This is the clear evidence of divine deliverance. Now, we've been seeing this kind of thing enough in 1 Samuel that I hope you're beginning to understand that God often works in His most amazing ways in the most ordinary, normal situations of life. I think that's really important because where you and I live is in the normal, everyday situations of life. Our lives may be punctuated by moments of excitement and adventure, but by and large, you and I live in the day-to-day grind, the nine-to-five, making ends meet, the struggles of living in family or single life, trying to get to the end of the week or finish the semester, ordinary life. And that's where we see God working most. It's comforting to know that some of God's most amazing works are painted on the canvas of such ordinary affairs like everyday life. And if you have the eyes to see that, then the irony is you begin to realize that in actuality, nothing's ordinary. Does that make sense? When you realize that God often works in the workroom of just everyday normal life, and if you have the eyes to see it, it transposes everyday normal life into something completely unordinary and normal at all, if we have the eyes to see it. Now, we see these extraordinary works of God in this very ordinary passage in three specific ways. We see it this way, that His work is often quiet, that His salvation is often surprising, and that His plan is often astounding. I like the points of this message from our chapter here in 1 Samuel 29. God's third way is often woven throughout the everyday fabric of our lives, and it's not presented to us in a nice, tidy verse division, like we know exactly what God is doing. So, following these three points come from us from the whole of this chapter, kind of like how God works throughout the whole of our lives. All that to say is, there's not going to be an easy one, verses 1 to 3 say this, verses 4 to 7 say this, and so on and so forth. They just are kind of woven through the entire fabric. So let's look at them one at a time. God's work is often very quiet. Do you notice in these 11 verses that God is very much in the background of this chapter? As a matter of fact, it's only the pagan king Achish 
that even mentions Him in verse 6 and verse 9, but it's still really clear that the Lord is making the events happen. It's not as if we need, nor does the writer provide a, thus the Lord delivered David from the hand of the Philistines kind of statement. Now, keep in mind, if you've been with us for a few weeks, chapter 29 is the second part of chapter 27. And if you recall, chapter 27, we called it a godless text because God didn't seem to be anywhere, yet He was everywhere. And so, chapter 29, that same kind of concept comes up. God is very much quietly in the background, but it's still very clear that He actually is working. And that's the way He tends to work. So, the question that we have to answer is, as we look back upon our own lives and our experience, couldn't we see this quiet hand of God working throughout? And, and I don't mean in the kind of, um, maybe some, somewhat the kind of petty way that we say, oh, I was so afraid I'd be bored at the dentist's office, but hey, God delivered me because there was the latest issue of Popular Mechanic or something like that. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about in the real events of life in the real circumstances where things get murky, through the twists and turns as we look back with hindsight, we can see, oh, wait a minute. When I thought I was alone, I can see God's fingerprints all over this situation. No big fanfare, no press release, but it's there nonetheless as I now look back. And some people say that this is, this is the, some of the challenge I have with God. Why can't God work in these big ways so it clearly can see Him? If He actually does exist, why doesn't He work in a way where I can't deny He's there? Well, sometimes He does work that way, right? Some of us in this very room have stories of that. But I think I have two reasons why God's work is often so quiet. Number one, quite frankly, I think we would freak out if we knew the totality of God's plans and purposes for us. If you've been with us in our study, imagine David. Think of David. If he knew back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 what he now's, now knows, would he have been as excited to be anointed the, king's, the, the Lord's king? Think about it in your own life, your own walk with God. Had you known all the twists and turns the sacrifices, those painful yet promising moments and demands that He would have had on your life, would you have been as inclined to follow Christ? Now, we need to be clear, especially as you read the Gospels, that we have to count the cost of following Jesus, but in our credit-consumed culture where we think we apparently don't have to pay the cost of anything, let alone a commitment to a divine being, that's not something we think about. My point is, God often works in these incremental ways to make us more like Him, because if we were to see the true chasm between what we actually are outside of Christ and what He intends for us to be, we would never believe that it was possible. Folks, think about it. The transition from going from death to life, darkness to light, selfishness to selflessness is excruciating for fallen human beings. It is. I like my darkness in my own nature apart from Christ. I like no one being able to see what I'm doing. I like no accountability. I don't like being dragged out into the light. I like being selfish, don't you? I like that. I wish that everybody was more like thinking about me. We like that. And God says, no, that's not how I intended life. I didn't give you your life so you can make it about your life. I gave you life so that you can understand what life was about, and it's much more than you. That's an excruciating process to go through. 
And if we were to see, oh, you want to take me from here to there, we might never believe it. We might never sign up. I know that going to the dentist will take care of my toothache, but that doesn't make the fear of sitting in that chair and having his pliers on my tooth any less uh, a fear of mine. And even when he tells me this isn't going to hurt at all, I know he's lying, but it's enough to get me to sit down in the chair, right? That's what God does. Let me put a verse for you. I think it's on the screen. Psalm 119.105. This is great for you control freak types like me. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I like that. A lamp to my feet, a light to my path, not a spotlight, not this bright light to show me the grand end game plan, just enough to know where my foot needs to go next, just enough so I know what the next step is, and then the next step, and then the next step. So partly, he leads us quietly because I think we would, we would never believe his plan to begin with. Now, secondly, for the other half of you, I think another reason God's leading is often so quiet is because if God showed you the end game plan and told you exactly what was going to become of your life, half of us would never feel the need to be utterly dependent upon Him. In other words, we say, oh, oh, that's the plan, that's what's going to happen with me? Great, good, I got what I want, see ya. That's an interesting thought. Have you ever wondered that in part, God leads us with just enough knowledge of what to do next so that we actually remain in a place of dependency upon Him. Now, you, you might just think that this, this reveals some kind of codependency issue in God, and He needs to keep us around Him in the dark so He feels useful, but that's not what's going on. God understands that our dependency on Him is much better than our independency from Him. And I don't mean dependency in some kind of immature, emotionally unbalanced, needy kind of way to be dependent on Him, but I mean a profound sense of dependence on Him in the same way that I'm dependent upon air, upon sleep, upon, upon my health. J.C. Ryle said this. It was amazing. It's quote here back on the screen. J.C. Ryle said this, health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Let's leave that quote up there for a while. I, I think J.C. Ryle, uh, so, such a striking quote, and I love it because it, it displays the radically countercultural uh, worldview of a Christian. It is actually saying that the good of this life represented by my health is only a relative good to the absolute good of life represented by nearness to God. Does that make sense? What, what he's getting at is that the good of this life demonstrated by health is a good thing, but it's a relative good compared to the absolute good of life, the absolute necessity of life, which is nearness to God. The question here, if you are a Christian, is to ask yourself then, which good is then relative in my life and which good is, do I consider absolute? Is nearness to God something that I genuinely think is a good thing, but I actually think it's a relative good thing compared to the absolute good of just being healthy? You know, if you look at J.C.'s quote there, you could replace it with a lot of things. Um, Wealth is a good thing, but poverty is far better if it leads us to God, yeah? 
Uh, strength is a good thing, but sickness is a far better thing if it leads us to God. You, convenience is a good thing, but inconvenience is a better thing if it leads us to God. It, it, it totally upends our cultural value system and puts it the way it needs to be. Now, keep your finger in 1 Samuel. Um, I want you to go to Psalm 73, where the psalmist just nails it. Psalm 73, verse 25 to 28. Let me just read it to you as, you, as, you're, as you're flipping there. Because the psalmist displays this for us. Whom have I in heaven but you? So he's saying, of, of all the things that are great in heaven, it's only you I really desire. And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is probably where JC got it from. For behold, those who are far from you, they will perish You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's a fascinating psalm. Read the whole psalm when you get home. It puts it in a better context. One last thing I want to say on this point. I have this quote written on my wall in my office. I look at it almost every day. I have no idea where I got it from, but it says this. I want to love Christ more than anything this life can give me and more than anything death can take from me. That is good. Because God's work is often quiet and He does these things to lead us to a dependency on Him. Point number two, God's salvation is often surprising. Now, verses two and four in our passage may seem a bit humorous to us, but the Philistines were deadly serious. Here they are marching to battle the Israelites and here is the former champion of the Israelites coming up the rear guard. They say, Achish, are you nuts? What are you doing here? And Achish says, look, David's been with me faithfully for 14 months serving me. Poor Achish has no idea that David was deceiving him. Remember that. And they, they, the Philistines say, no, no, we can't have this. You remember what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 14? That's not what they said. But if you read 1 Samuel chapter 14, they had Hebrews in their army, and when they saw the battle was going in the direction of the Hebrews, they decided to jump ship and join the Hebrews and start killing the Philistines. They said, not, no, not again. You send these guys home. You send them home. And so, even Achish's hands are now tied as he says to David in verse 9, look, the lords of the Philistines have said, you're not going into battle, but we know it wasn't the lord of the Philistines, it was the lord of hosts saying, no, no, you're not going into the battle. This isn't the first time that God would use enemies as saviors. We saw this clearly in 1 Samuel 23. The Philistines, they make really great, unwitting, but very effective servants of God. Now, we cannot take this passage to mean that any time I get myself into a jam or get off track because I was being short-sighted, that God will infallibly rescue me all the time from my own mess. But what it does teach is that even in our mistakes, even in our mess-ups, we are still no match for our God who has thousands of surprising ways of saving His people, even by the mouth of the Philistines. You know, there's a, a children's story about a, a, a woman who was alone in her elder years of life in poverty, crying out to God for her daily bread. She had a very antagonistic neighbor who heard her crying out to God and decided he's going to have a little divine fun. 
So he went out and bought some bread and laid it at her doorstep. And the next morning when the the widow came out, saw the bread, she broke out into praise and gratitude to God. And at that moment, the neighbor decided to interrupt and demythologize this incident. He says, that's not God. I heard you praying the other day. I went out. I bought the bread. I put it at your doorstep. It is not then your God. And the lady, young widow, was ready. She says, oh, no, no, it was still God. He just made you believe you were doing it the whole time, right? See, this is what, what they're trying to say. We've seen this point over and over before, that God is bigger than our unbelief. God will actually use even our refusal to be used by Him for His useful purposes. That's just the way God is. God's ways are surprising, and that's not merely an observation. That's not merely something we see in the Bible or in our lives around us. It is a statement of fact, whether God uses the Philistines or hard-hearted neighbors. Whenever we catch a glimpse of God working in a surprising way, it ought to lead to worship. We ought to take stock of our lives and look back on our lives and see the hand of God working quietly so that we can be surprised at His salvation. There ought to be those times where we just throw up our hands and say, look, God is just unsearchable and His ways are beyond figuring out by me. That's what Paul said. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. This is what they say. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Notice that. See, the problem with knowing English too well is we just read the depths of his riches. It's not just that he's rich and wise and has knowledge. They are a depth to him. Uh, Unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. Why is that? Isaiah tells us why. Because my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Oh, how different are they? As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, your thoughts. How high is heaven from the earth? I have no idea. About as far as east is from west, probably. The point God is getting is that I am not like you at all, and I bring my salvation in surprising ways, and it will blow your mind, even though oftentimes it is quiet, it is there. Finally, God's plan is often astounding. Now, can you picture the scene? David and his 600 men marching to the gathering point before they go to war with their own brothers and popping antacids, knowing what are we going to do? How are we going to get out of this jam? Imagine what David must be thinking. Imagine what's going through his mind. How do I get out of this? Do we make a mad break for it? Do we run? What are we going to do? Didn't God tell me that that I was going to be king? Didn't God deliver me time and time again? Maybe I shouldn't have come to the Philistines in chapter 27. Maybe now I shouldn't have been deceiving Achish when I came to the Philistines. Maybe I put more trouble on my own trouble. And now God is going to give it to me, and He's going to deliver me into the hand of Saul because I faltered in my faith. I think it's at least reasonable to think that David might have been thinking those thoughts. After all, David, like every one of us in this room, is tempted to fashion God after our own image, aren't we? And you or I would have been thinking the same thing. When people let us down enough or they botched up their own lives enough, we are tempted to abandon them to their own devices and say, well, they deserve it. They got what's coming to them. But we are reminded in 1 Samuel 29 that God, the God that David served or we served is not that way. 
God had showed David clearly that he could deliver him from the hand of Saul. God had showed David clearly that he could deliver him from any foe, any situation, any enemy. And now God was showing David that David could be delivered from David himself. If you're a Christian, you should take heart from this passage. Perhaps you have not been living your life according to God's wisdom and God's word. Maybe you have doing things of your own accord, and now you're reaping the consequences. Maybe you have been thinking that your wisdom trumps God's wisdom, and you could assess your way through this life, and it's ended up in backfire and disaster, and you fear that maybe God, His mercy has withered. After all, yours would have. But folks, inexhaustible mercy, by definition, is inexhaustible. And God is showing David, yes, I can deliver you from everything out there. I can deliver you from your enemies, but I can deliver you even from yourself. God does not cast us off because of our foolishness or because of our bungling. His mercy is stubborn. It is full. Keep in mind, God's mercy followed David into Philistia. And David would write in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now, I like the ESV translation that we read, but I think the New Living Translation captures this verb better. Surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. Surely, goodness and mercy will chase me all the days of my life. Surely, goodness and mercy will hunt me down all the days of my life is what he's saying. That's the verb. That's the strength of the verb. That God's mercy and goodness doesn't just follow as if it's kind of a passive thing, a little puppy dog. No, it's a ferocious wolf that hunts you down. Those who put their trust in Christ absolutely and see Him as the absolute good, goodness and mercy hunt you down like a ferocious wolf. That's what David says. And in some sense, this is the sweetest aspect of our salvation in Christ if you are a Christian. Yeah, in Christ, God saves us from our sin. Mind-blowing. In Christ, God saves us from an eternity separated from Him. That's amazing. But maybe the sweetest aspect of salvation, the side of eternity, is that God saves us from ourselves. I hope I don't need to unpack that truth anymore. I, I hope it's clearly self-evident to you how wonderful and amazing that is. If it isn't, you are out of touch with your own deception in your own heart, quite frankly. Or, or you are blinded by your own sinful self-will. I know I am, I'm, 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 what do they call it, I'm messing or I'm kind of getting too close to home, but that's the reality. Or you're living in denial. So you begin to understand what Christianity is all about when you understand the most astounding part of God's plan is that He would save you at all. And because of that... You can count on that He will do whatever it takes and give you everything else you need, and there's nothing else He wouldn't do for you. That's Paul's point in Romans 8, 32. If God is going to give you His Son, His only Son, the only human being who was ever perfect, who loved God perfectly in everything He said, thought, or did, who was the actual only picture of perfection we've ever had, and if he'll give him for you, 
Paul reasons, isn't he going to give you everything else you need? But here's the important clarification. It's not in this your best life now kind of garbage. God's like, look, 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 look. If you think your life here is what life is about, you completely missed it. This life here is like a grain of sand on the uh, on a dune of eternity. God says, I'm working not for your happiness, something so fleeting and temporal. I'm working to make you like Jesus Christ so that you rule and reign with me in perfect joy, life, and pleasures forevermore. That's what he's about. Look, we need to land this, but uh, if it isn't clear by now, 1 Samuel 29 is a beautiful picture of the gospel. David is in a situation that he cannot possibly save himself from. He is in a bind, and nothing he can do or come up with will save him. Regardless of what he does, if he goes left or he goes right, it's a lose-lose situation. And look, friends, we can bury ourselves in religion We can bury ourselves in selfish desire, but neither of those will bring us the salvation we need or the satisfaction we most desire. Neither one of those. And we, if you're being honest with yourself, are marching to our doom until it is God Himself who intervenes because of His abundant mercy and radically changes the situation. Think about it. What could be more quiet than a a child born in a manger in an obscure part of the world to a no-name, nothing family and lived 30 years in obscurity and then three years later when his amazing life ends, only have 12 kind of bungling, socially awkward, outcast men following him. What could be more surprising than for this child to become a man and these 12 men can proclaim a salvation that turns the globe upside down and reality inside out. What could be more astounding than God saying, I'm going to give you that salvation for no other reason other than you acknowledge that you can't save yourselves? You see, the themes of 1 Samuel are the themes of the entire Bible. That God saves those who cannot save themselves. We've all been heard, heard it been told, God helps those who what? Helps themselves. That's from the pit of hell. <laughs> the Bible we read says God helps those who cannot help themselves. That's why He does it. And that's the theme of 1 Samuel 29. Now, this doesn't ignore the historical realities because next week, those are going to crash right back into David's life. But isn't that how our lives are as well? Moments of just, I can't believe this God I serve to, oh my gosh, I need this God because my life, the bottom just fell out. It doesn't excuse the historical reality. It doesn't ignore it, but it gives us a kind of hope and grit to get through it. And we're going to see more of that next week. The point being, God is a God who saves in 10,000 ways. And we've seen that over and over and over again as if God's saying to His people, I want you to get that in whatever situation you're in. There is a third way for those who are going to see me as the absolute good in life. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for those times when you are not the absolute good and we make the relative the absolute and vice versa. 
Father, forgive us, more importantly, for actually doubting that you, you are good and merciful and kind and generous. Lord, we live in a world, and you know very well, that beats at our faith every day, every moment. And Lord, we need to hear from your word, to be reminded again and again and again that you are a God who saves in 10,000 ways, and that looks 10,000 different ways in our lives. Father, you know our needs, and some of us are in impossible situations. We corporately cry to you, do the thing that you love to do to glorify yourself. Save us, because we cannot save ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The following message titled, Saved from Service, was given by Pastor Rick Roadheaver at Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. This message is part of a series from the book of 1 Samuel. For more information and resources from Christ Community, please visit us at www.ccclh.org.